So many papers, so many papers. Okay, um, yeah, it's great to have it. Can I not do that? Okay, I will not do that. All right, should I back up, move forward, stand still? Okay, uh, well, I wanna welcome all of you here today. Uh, as we kind of already alluded to, we are gonna be talking about the scripture today and just how to use the scripture effectively to, to minister, to lead. And I'm really excited about that topic. I think that it's something that is very uh, timely for us. Uh, and the reason being that we live in a time of growing biblical illiteracy. Uh, we live in a time when we're, we're knowing and using the scripture less and less. Our culture as a whole is less informed of it, less uh, it has a, it's more available than ever before, but, but we just access it a lot less. And so uh, I've even noticed that just in, in speaking and things. I had a conversation with Ronnie about Northeast um, a few months back, just talking about, uh, I was like, you need to start giving your verse references when you quote scripture. I was like, I don't think people realize you're quoting scripture as much as you do. Uh, because people are just, we, we haven't encountered it, we haven't read it, we haven't studied it on our own. So I wanna start with a prayer and then we'll kind of launch into today. God, I wanna pray that you would help today be a day that we could learn um, one or two things that we can take with us uh, that would help us to use your word instead of our words, that would help us to be um, faithful uh, with what you've given us, to, to be people who correctly handle the word of truth. And I want to pray that, that our mission would be enhanced because of that, that, that we know that our mission is really just your mission. And I pray that, that we would do it your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So I probably should introduce myself. I think a lot of people know me, but my name is Brandon Worsham. I uh, am one of the the leaders of Focus. I work specifically at UTD, but I work with the staff at all of the campuses. And um, and this is, you know, Brad and I have been kind of planning this event over the last few years. Last year we took a, a hiatus uh, because we, we feel like there's nothing we do that's more important than investing in leaders. Uh, uh, as one uh, famous pastor says, everyone wins when a leader gets better. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so our goal today is not that we would retain every single thing that we say or come out of this amazing new people, but because, because everyone in this room uh, is already leading, whether that's in some formal role or in setting an example to the people around us. And, and we just want to kind of, if, if we can have this many people sort of take it up a notch, uh, we, can, we can do a lot with, with just a little bit of time. I did forget my watch. I only wear a watch on days that I preach, so hopefully, we'll see. I'll try and remember to look at that uh, and keep us on track. Oh, that would be so nice. Thank you. It'd, it'd be amazing that we have the same size wrist. Um, perfect. Okay. So yeah, so we live in a time of growing biblical illiteracy. The, the interesting thing is that we have lots of opinions about the Bible as we become more and more ignorant of it. Uh, we see that 
a lot on campus, and um, Serac has been, you know, Serac has this way of kind of trolling people in <laughs> conversations, and, um, but in a sweet and gentle way of just people like, well, I think, and he's like, oh, really, where'd you get that? Where'd you hear that? You know, and just kind of engaging because we just kind of pull this stuff out of who knows where, and often we haven't thought about where it came from. So we have lots of opinions about the Bible. Uh, while we read it less and less. I would even say that even in the church, we don't really have a biblical worldview anymore. We've sort of embraced the, the Western worldview, which is really a, a sort of a humanist worldview, and then we try and find scriptural ideas and kind of fit them in. I was reading a book a, a few weeks ago, and, um, and it kind of captured this. The book's called The Drama of Scripture. But he just says, the Bible has been broken up into little bits, historical bits, devotional bits, moral bits, theological bits, narrative bits. In fact, it's been chopped into fragments that fit into the nooks and crannies of the Western cultural story. When this is allowed to happen, the Bible forfeits its claim to be the one comprehensive true story of our world and is held captive within another story, the humanist narrative. And I think that kind of captures it, that, that we don't have a real sense, we haven't read the Bible in such a way that it's allowed to sort of bite back, that it has any teeth against all of the things that we're really believing and sort of practicing on a day-to-day -day basis. I find us in our ministry relying more and more on pop psychology instead of the scripture to minister. We say things we heard on sitcoms more than we say things we found in the Word. And so much of our advice, even within our churches, and, and I hear this, is really more about self-actualizing than it is about becoming a radical, sold-out, self-sacrificing disciple. We're relying more and more on leadership ideas from business and government to learn how to lead instead of looking at Jesus and seeing what he says in his word. And so in the end, we end up leading people. The danger is we lead people to ourselves or we lead people to our culture's pitiful answers, but not really to Jesus, the one who can change them. But the scary part is that we don't notice the difference. That's the problem. Or we go down a different road. And we lead people to this experience of Jesus, this experiential Jesus or spirit, I'll put it in quotes, that may or may not be the true God who's revealed himself to us. The apostles were all about this kind of charismatic ministry and letting the spirit guide and lead the church, but they were also very careful to say that we always have to test the spirits to make sure it's actually the Holy Spirit that we're dealing with. And that, that testing the spirit comes from knowing the scriptures well enough to use them effectively in our own lives and in, in each other's lives. So the response to this big problem, I just wanna offer three things that I think we have to, to be pondering. The first is that we would take the Bible seriously. The second is that we have to take the Bible on its own terms. And the third is that we need to take the Bible with us when we minister or lead. So taking the Bible seriously, that's the first thing. If we want to be well-equipped, we're going to have to be serious about reading and learning. 
We just know this. We, the, God's people throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament have been known as a people of the word. But that is not a great description of a modern American Christians. You know, that we find ourselves in discontinuity with our family history. That we're trying to live out our faith so differently and it's causing problems. Our hobbies are beating out our time in Scripture. Our shows and movies are beating out our time in Scripture. Our games, whether we're playing them or watching them, are beating out Scripture. Our busyness is beating out Scripture. Our kids' activities are beating out Scripture. We go for whatever other people are doing. And I think some of these practices of families reading the Scripture together and laying that foundation we're missing out on is I've been doing, uh, going through the Old Testament with our, our focus apprentices over the last few months. Uh, one of the things that was really neat, we had 12 of them. They came from a lot of different experiences. And Abby would often share about how her family growing up, even when she was little, would just read the Old Testament together. And so I got to watch how she came into that experience very differently than the rest of them. Yes, she had a lot of thoughts that had to be challenged and stuff, but she just had a foundation that was a step above. You know, even for some of us, it's reading or watching the news. Why do we spend more time on the news than we do in the word. Can you do anything about it? Does it really have much to do with us? We obsess over our politics and whatever's going on or or the things that are going on in social media that we maybe call news, you know, and all this stuff. What are we reading and watching and looking at that we don't have any time? And I find this in myself. I get in bed at night and I'm not quite tired and I don't I don't go for the word, I'll start reading USA Today or just scrolling through some feed and reading nonsense, but it becomes a habit. And I think the problem is that many of us need to develop a taste for God's word again or for the first time. Psalm 119, 103, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Can you honestly say that? about God's words? Are they sweet to your mouth or is it this like, oh, it's kind of this chore? You know, and if we want to develop a taste for something, we have to do more than touch our tongues to it every few weeks, right? I remember when I was a little kid, my mom was trying to make me eat boiled squash or maybe it was baked or something. I remember it as being horrific. I was probably like five or six. And she's like, you have to take a bite. You have to try it. And I was like, I'm not going to. But then I finally, I was like, touched it. And then I threw up. And then, <laughs> I mean, it was involuntary. You know, you can't. If something's that disgusting, you know, you have to vomit. But, you know, it's just that kind of thing. I like squash now, right? You know, it's, it's good. I, I learned that if you just put enough cheese and... And stuff on it, it gets really good. I remember I went to, when I was at Sikkim, our, our student uh, leadership training thing a few years ago, I had a host family that I only had one time. And at the, the first day of, uh, of the, the week, and they were hosting us for an entire week, and they asked, um, what, you know, what do you like? What do you not like? Are there any foods you don't like? And I was like, I'm easy. Like, I eat anything basically except olives. I just don't like 
olives. And so, and I was thinking she was asking as like a normal host, but she was taking the host mom thing very seriously. So we get to dinner and there's like a bowl of assorted olives. That is the side. She's like, I thought it would be good for you to try and (laughs) learn to like. (laughs) And I had given this big lecture to all the students right before we left, like, you be a good guest. You eat anything they put in front of you. And I have a student, it was Andrew Pham with me, you know, sitting right there that like, thank you, you know, so. (laughs) But I I learned to like olives and I didn't learn to like them by staring at the bowl and telling people I didn't like it. You know, I learned to like them the way she did, you know, it started on something. She really was a good mom to me that week. (laughs) But I learned I had to try things and then I could grow a taste for them. And I think we can also lose our taste for, for things, both good and bad things. I remember Mandy was talking last night about, uh, at Focus at UTD about friends and just kind of what that show teaches and, and stuff and how much in our generation we just watched that. And I remember my, my father especially talking about friends just so derogatorily. It was, you know, and I was like, he doesn't get it. It's not really. And then when it came out on Netflix a few, you know, months or a year or two ago, um, I like, was like, oh, friends, that'll be fun. And I watched like two episodes. And I was like, oh my gosh, how did I not notice this stuff? It's terrible. It's just terrible. But I had, I had distanced myself from a lot of that. The same way, you know, DVR changed my life financially because I stopped wanting stuff when I stopped watching commercials all the time. I just didn't have things that I wanted all the time. And, and, and I started realizing that the things that I fill my mind and heart with are the things that overflow and come out. Yeah. A question we have to ask ourselves as we think about taking the Bible seriously and becoming readers of it again or listeners of it again is, do we still believe in the perspicuity of Scripture? Let's all say perspicuity together. Perspicuity. Anyone know what that means? Probably not. Um, It's a theological word that just means that that it's a part of what, what happened in the Protestant Reformation and has subsequently happened in the Catholic Church is that a core belief of Christians is that the scripture is clear. That's all it really means, the clarity of scripture, that it's understandable, that people can come to it and hear. It doesn't mean that we can understand every single thing on first reading. You know, it doesn't mean that it's entirely clear, every single piece, but that it's sufficiently clear, that if I read the word, I can hear from God. Um, Brittany, I don't know where you are. You can start coming up. I'm going to get Brittany Fattis to come up and share a story. Um, because what we've been doing, uh, again, I was reading the Old Testament with our, um, our apprentices, and one of their assignments was that they had to get a group of students together and read aloud at least one book of the Old Testament. And so I wanted to get Brittany to share, can, can we get this mic on maybe? Uh, just a little bit about her experience going into that and then what the experience was like. Yeah, hi. Um, so I read several books with different groups of people. Um, I read a, through uh, half of the Minor Prophets with um, two or three girls. Yeah, and it was pretty incredible. I, when I read it through the first time, like in our class, I had a pretty hard time reading through it, because it's, like, pretty strong language. It's, like, God's judgment coming on Israel and, his, and their neighbors. And so I was like, wow, this is a lot. But when we read it together, they just had so many questions, and they got stuff, and they just understood it the first time that they read it. 
And that was just really cool and encouraging because we just read it. Like, we didn't read any commentaries. Like, I didn't give them any information that I had learned in class, and we just read it for what it was. And then we also read Genesis in our peer team. And, like, that was really cool because that is more of a story, and they were picking out things of, like, oh, God, God's character is being revealed slowly, and they had questions about, like, the things that God was talking about and, um, and just the way that when we hear it as kids, we, like, learn it in this, like, watered-down version that's so nice, and they were like, whoa, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience that they, like, got a lot from that from just reading it. And then that inspired them. It was like, oh, I want to read more of the Old Testament. Like, it's not bad. We can learn stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I... Uh... I think the thing that, that really stood out to me from that is that uh, as we went around and each of, each of them shared about that experience, one of the recurring things was they, as ministers, were afraid of having their students encounter the scripture. It's like, oh, it's going to be really hard. They're not going to get it. They don't have all these you know, classes and commentaries. And then they were pleasantly surprised that people could understand God's word, you know, when we sat down. And, but I think it speaks to something within us that we think it's more complicated than it is. And there, there is a sense in which it is. I remember um, Brady Bobbink saying a number of years ago, he says, if you just read the Bible, just kind of read it surface level, he's like, you may get bored of it in a couple of years. And he says, but if you learn to study, then you'll realize that you've just sort of been standing on the beach with the, the water lapping your feet for those couple of years. And there's an ocean out there that you can do. And we can always go deeper, but often we're, we're so afraid of the depths that we don't even step into the surf. And we're not out there. So do we believe that the scripture is clear that we can bring people to the word, that getting people to read the word is what's going to transform them more than another conversation with us. You know, they have to, to come to encounter God. See, the, the Protestants early on, they, had, they were coming out of a medieval Catholic church that had been teaching that you had to, the only people who could interpret the Bible, the only people who could really understand the Bible and tell you what it meant was the church hierarchy. And again, the modern Catholic Church is not, is not teaching this. But our, our problem is we're becoming medieval Catholics. But we're becoming it not because the Pope is trying to control us. He's not. We're, try, we're becoming it out of fear and laziness. And so once again, we come to church and let some professional tell us what the Bible means rather than going to it ourselves. And then we perpetuate ourselves as we disciple and mentor because we don't teach people to go read it themselves. So taking the Bible seriously means moving toward the fear or discomfort or boredom or whatever it is that's keeping us away and trusting that God's got it, that he can handle our questions, that he can develop in us a love for his word. That, that he's good, and whatever we find in Scripture, we're going to find that he's good, that he won't give us a scorpion when we asked for an egg, as Jesus would say. <laughs> you know, the Bible he's given us is good for us, and it will be good to us if we take it seriously. And so we, the second thing is we have to take the Bible on its own terms. We can take it on its own terms because we trust him. So the question is, what is the Bible? What are we dealing with here? Because it doesn't really fit a lot of the molds that we try to cram it into. It's not a rule book. 
No matter how many people try to sort of make it into a rule book for life, it does have some rules, though. It's not really a devotional book. We end up sort of organizing and sorting and, you know, finding little topics and things, though it certainly has devotional purposes. It's not a theology textbook, as we sometimes want to use it, that just has, you know, uh, systematic theology laid out for us. We don't really have anything like that, though it teaches us so much about God. And it's certainly not a question and answer book for our questions. See, I think our challenge is we often expect the scripture to adjust to our modern questions. We want it to answer the questions that we're asking, but that's an arrogant way to approach the scripture. We need to adjust to their ancient answers and figure out what questions we ought to be asking. And then, and only then, we can humbly wonder What might this say in response to some of the questions that we most want to ask? It might have a word for us. But the problem is, no one's really stopping us from trying to make the scripture into all of those things. We use it in those ways in our practice and in our conversations and in our churches. N.T. Wright has a quote that I like. He says, Uh, that many of our ways of scripture, of using scripture, basically imply, quote, that God has, after all, given us the wrong sort of book, and it's our job to turn it into the right sort of book. So are we taking the Bible on its own terms, or are we trying to make it fit ours? Do we only read our same favorite few books or passages again and again? Even that's one of the dangers of something like focus on Jesus or our studies is that we kind of, we repeat, we just plow the same ground over and over again, but we don't move on. So what is the Bible if it isn't those things that we try to turn it into? Well, one, I think we have to realize that the Bible is grounded in history. It's grounded in specific people. And I don't think we should be surprised that the God who, while he himself supersedes time and space, the God who would become a man, who would place himself in history in one time, in one place, would reveal his word to us in this way, that it's human, that it's rooted in story. But, but the fact that it's rooted in history, the fact that it's rooted in one time and in one place per, per book or whatever, but in this in this. Uh, rooted in history, means that the Bible writers could only think in categories that they had been exposed to, just like we can only think in categories that we've been exposed to. So we, we, we can mislead ourselves by saying things like, oh, the Bible is timeless. And what do we mean by that? You know, because in one sense, it's very time sensitive. It's rooted in a specific time. It has a message for all times, is what we should mean when we say that. But we can be exposed to new things. We can't go back and expose the Bible writers to modern scientific thought or modern sociological theory or modern... We can't do any of that. But we can be exposed to their categories, to thinking like they thought, so that we can hear from them. We have sort of a modern arrogance that we think anyone that lived before 50 years ago is an idiot compared to us, you know, that they have nothing to offer us. 
But, but often what we find is that they've thought much more deeply about the world than we have. They, they haven't been distracted by a Facebook feed for the last 10 years of their life. You know, that's one of the challenges that I find even on my focus staff is I'm like, in, in our average lives, unless we just pick something difficult, none of us read anything more complicated than clickbait. The longest argument that we've read, you know, in the last two years is 500 words long. And then we try and read something that's hard and it's unpalatable. So again, we need to be exposed to these things so that we can read the Bible well. The second thing is that the scripture is authoritative and useful. And the scripture says this in a lot of different ways. So, you know, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Hebrews 4, it says that, that God's word judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts as this judging role. In 2 Timothy, he says that all scriptures God breathed and it's useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that we will be thoroughly equipped. And I give you those as examples. Most of us know those. We, we've you know, taught those early studies on uh, God's word. But in general, the Bible isn't very concerned with talking about itself. We get only glimpses of what it thinks about itself as it's talking about other things. But the danger is we use those verses to talk about the Bible, and we don't actually know what the main thing is. We don't even know what it's talking about, what it's trying to do. And so we, we, we use this phrase that the Scripture is authoritative, that it has authority in our lives, and it speaks in these powerful ways. But I think part of the challenge is we, we do that, and we, rather than sort of saying, we know what the Bible is, so let's figure out what kind of authority it's doing. I think we often reverse that, and we're like, we know what authority is, so let's make the Bible fit that. But all authority in the Bible is God's because all authority is God's, right? And so we need to take seriously the way he tries to exercise authority. What does it mean? When we hear authority, we think about trying to control people or trying to control situations. But if that's the kind of authority God's trying to exercise in the Bible, he isn't very good at it. You know, it's not a very good book for that. Is the Bible really here to control the church, to control our individual lives? If so, I would think we would expect way more lists of rules and regulations than what we find. If all authority is God's authority, then we might ask ourselves, how does God exercise his authority? And then we might be able to gain some insight into what he's trying to do through the Bible. Again, N.T. Wright has a good thing on this. He says, God's authority vested in Scripture is designed, as all God's authority is designed, to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order to set people free to be fully human. God's authority is used to liberate us from sin and evil so we can be what he designed us to be. He goes on to say, that is what God is in the business of doing. And that is what his authority is there for. Notice the great commission. Jesus says it. 
All authority has been given to me, so you go and get on with the mission, right? I have all the authority so that you can go do something important. Again, in Acts 1, we get a, a similar thing. He says that, you know, God has set every, all the times by his own authority. And he says, but you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. See, God uses his authority to empower us. So how is the scripture useful? How is it authoritative? Well, it's mostly a story. Add in some poems and some personal letters and you've basically got most of it. Almost all of it. But it's mostly a story. And I don't think we think enough about how does a story have authority over our lives? What does that mean? That book I, I read earlier, uh, Drama of Scripture, also tells this story about a Hindu religious scholar who said to a missionary, he said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. In any way, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There's nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. And yet, someone from the outside can see that but that's not how we use it. So how do stories have authority or exercise authority over us? Wright uses this metaphor of an unfinished Shakespeare play. You know, Shakespeare always wrote in five acts, right? And, and what if we found a play that he was writing right before he died and we only have the first four acts? How might, if someone was going to stage that play, if someone was going to try and sort of finish it so we could have access to it, how might the first four acts exercise authority over what came later? Well, we would expect continuity in certain ways. We would expect the characters to act in similar ways as the, as the story moves on. I, Sarah and I were watching Goodwill Hunting a few weeks ago because she'd never seen it. And she always gets on right after and, and uh, reads the, uh, what do they call it, the little tidbits, trivia or whatever on IMDb about movies. And one of the ones that they were telling was that when they were, were uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were, were taking this script around to all the major studios and everyone was interested in it, but they had put this trick in the thing. So about uh, most of the way through the plot, um, and if you're familiar with the movie, it's, you know, uh, these two friends, they're, they're two friends, and one of them has a love interest, and Minnie Driver, and all this stuff. But in the script, um, they said on about page 60 of the script, they just have this random sex scene between them <laughs> written into this script. And they just put it in there to see if people were actually reading this story. And so they said, of all the major studios, only one guy was like, we love it. We want to do it. And he goes, but what is the deal with that sex scene? <laughs> and they're like, that's, yes, you can, you can produce the movie. <laughs> but I think we have to ask ourselves, when, when we look at the, 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 the drama of Scripture, the story of Scripture, you know, Act 1, creation, Act 2, the fall, Act 3, the rest of the Old Testament, Act 4, the New Testament, you know, wherever we're at. You know, when we've got this thing, it's like when people get to your life or when they look at our church, 
Is it like, like, like that sex scene where it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, I've been reading along and I'm like, what is going on here? This has nothing to do with the plot thus far. <laughs> you know, or does our life, does our communal life together read as a satisfying next step in the plot? See, I think God has given us great freedom. He's given us great freedom. But he wants what we do with that freedom to make sense in his unfolding story. That we understand who we're dealing with. This thing our culture is doing is very different. And and the church is buying into it in a lot of ways. It's kind of like, act five, surprise. Sexual ethics doesn't actually matter. You know, surprise. Oh, act five, surprise. This whole God made a male and female thing. Pretend that didn't matter all the way. You know, it's like we, we do these things that are totally in discontinuity. And then we go try and find little nitpicky verses to back it up. And I could go on with those. Those are just some of the ones that are in our face. But we do it in the way that, that even we practice church a lot of times. The kind of legalism that we let creep in to our church, the, the adherence to tradition instead of God's word that we somehow find acceptable. You know, there are some surprises along the way in this five-act play that God is writing, but they don't work like that. There's always foreshadowing. It always makes sense once you get there. But we need to let the Bible bite back. We need to let it shape our imaginations, shape our dreams, shape our opinions. And to do that, we're going to have to read it and we're going to have to take it on its own terms. Because if we don't take the Bible on its own terms, we won't be able to effectively take the Bible with us when we minister to others. See, in order to do this, we need to be reading and learning on our own. I was looking at the, the survey results uh, that uh, the survey Brad had sent out, and it was, it was concerning to see how many of us mainly study Scripture in order to study with someone else. And I have been there for sure. There have been times in my life, and I'm like, what's the problem with that? I'm in the Word. It's the Word. But as I've reflected on that, I've seen some ways it's problematic. Because when I do that, I tend to focus only on the things that I already know and understand, because I'm not typically prepping for a study from a minor prophet or wherever it is, you know. I go back to those passages that I know. We tend to focus in those times only on the useful bits. We're very concerned with useful things. What's going to be useful and really speak? Which means we tend to leave out the stories that make up the bulk of the Scripture and find the statements that sort of clarify and condense. And we tend to look at little pieces rather than the big picture when we only study, we only read in order to to prep a study for someone else. But when we give the Spirit space to minister to us in our own lives through reading Scripture, we have so much more to share with others. And I think about that with just the books that, the, of the scripture that have really been so meaningful to me and that I've spent a lot of time in. Uh, books like 1 Corinthians and Mark and Genesis and Exodus and these books that I've just spent, Ecclesiastes, and those are the books that I use. And I use them not because I was prepping for a study with someone, but because there are messages from those books that are written on my heart 
They've become my messages to share. Luke 6.45, Jesus said, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what's your heart full of? You'll know by what comes out of your mouth on a week-to-week basis, according to Jesus. Is the scripture ready on your lips? And if it's not, if it's not what's overflowing from your heart, then we know it's time to make more time for his word. Are my thoughts on things being shaped by the scripture? I'm even scared of a lot. Blake and I were having conversations about this this week. I was sharing with him about our uh, search for Christian counselors to work with uh, our students. And, and Mandy kind of went out reaching out to all these different Christian counselors that we've gotten recommendations and asking them, like, what does it mean to you that you're a Christian counselor? Like, what does that look like? And how most of them, it's like, well... You know, if my client says they're a Christian and asks, we might pray at the end. But other than that, they're just doing secular counseling. It's, there's nothing about God's word there. And the advice that they give is really about finding yourself and self-actualizing and what do you want and figuring out your deepest desires. And there's no call to deny themselves. I shared at, at Northeast a couple weeks ago that, that one of the young men was talking about uh, talking with Eddie Trauber about his marriage and, and how he said, I thought Eddie would take my side, but instead he took me to the cross. And, and again, that's, that's the kind of thing, but it's rare. It's hard to find. We've been looking for years and we still only have two people that we recommend, you know, and, and that is a challenge. Some of us need to take a half day to be with the Lord and read his word. We need to turn down an invitation. We need to miss out on an event or a party or a game. We may need to use a few hours of our work vacation time to invest in something that's much longer lasting. So some suggestions as I close with the scripture. We need to speak the scripture to one another. It needs to be a part of our conversations. It needs to be what we use and go back to as we minister to one another and even as we chat. Because again, I was convicted in that conversation with that young man I mentioned earlier when he said, I thought Eddie would take my side, but he took me to the cross. And I thought, what have I been doing in our conversations about this? I'll let you wonder. I don't... It was probably really good. Um, You know, what Brittany was talking about, these public readings of Scripture, getting people together to just read the Word. It's the simplest form of small group. No one has to prep questions or do anything that we would actually believe that even without my preparation, even without my brilliant questions or my brilliant additional insights from a commentary, that God's Word could speak to us, that it would be worth reading. The, the, the Bible Project has some, some good podcasts and, and things on that. And just how this is, you know, Paul tells Timothy uh, in his letter to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And yet that's kind of fallen out of most of our churches now. So reading to, to one another. 
you know, look how often Jesus references Scripture in answering questions, how often he quotes the Old Testament. And he's the Lord. What he says actually matters. Like, if he says it, then it is Scripture. But he still quotes the Scripture. How much more should we be taking one another to God's Word? We need to read big chunks of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to ask Drew to come up. I don't know where he's at. Um, and share a little bit, because the, the apprentices, um, over the, the August to October, read the entire Old Testament. They'll do the New Testament next semester. But I wanted to just get one of them to share a little bit about what that experience was like reading so much at once. Yeah, so I'd heard a bunch of stories about the apprentices doing this, and I was super intimidated, and I thought it was going to be horrible. Um, but it wasn't. It was actually super, super fun to read these big, huge chunks, you know, sit down in one setting and read a whole book. Um, and Old Testament books, like long ones, like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Um, and the thing I really took away from it is you notice things that you would never notice otherwise. Um, you really can see, like, stuff in the structure of the book. You can see things like, um, like repeated little lines or, like, actions. It's like, if you do it in that kind of sense, you see, like, oh, I just read that, like, 30 minutes ago instead of, like, oh, I just read that three weeks ago or something. You kind of pick up on those things a little bit better. Um, you can just kind of start to see these themes and motifs a little better, like these bigger, bigger themes. Um, I kind of use the metaphor of like looking at a painting. So a lot of times we kind of read scripture like if you look at a painting with a, like a magnifying glass, and you kind of look at it and like look at all the little brush strokes, and you can get a lot out of it, but then it's very different than stepping back and looking at the whole thing. You can really see how all those brushstrokes come together to like fit in this huge tapestry. And it's just super, super useful to like read in big chunks. Hope you guys all get a chance to do it. Amen. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, guys. So yeah, we need to we need to be reading in big chunks. I do not recommend Proverbs. Peter and I read Proverbs to one another um, this summer. It was an experience. <laughs> Though I did laugh because halfway through that, he goes, what is this? I've never seen this before. <laughs> I was like, what did you do in your apprenticeship? That's what I said. <laughs> no, but it, is, it is, doesn't, doesn't hang together quite the same way as some of the other books. Um, but yeah, we need to read in big chunks so that we can see those things. So that rather than, again, touching our tongue to it every day or every few weeks, that we begin consuming and can develop a taste. We need to read the parts that we don't normally read. And we all fall into those patterns, right? One of the, one of the questions on the survey was about that. What do you normally read? And you can sort of see where, and I think Brad and Leslie will go over some of that later, the parts that we kind of avoid. You know, don't run from the parts that are uncomfortable or that you don't understand. We rarely grow when we're comfortable. And it's going to be an embracing that discomfort that we learn and grow. And we need to learn to read the Bible better. You know, here's the thing. Our collective, and I mean this not in this room, just Christians' collective ability to read the Bible well has improved dramatically. Uh, we've, we've learned so much about the original languages. We've learned so much about the history of so much access. We have access to understanding of biblical theology that, that no generation before has had access to. Our best readings of the Bible are getting better and better. But our worst readings are basically the same that they've always been. They're just the same old heresies, the same old ways. 
The question is, is your reading getting better? Are you helping others to do the same? And then the last thing I would say is just that we need to respond appropriately to the scripture. See, there's a challenge here because we've gotten in this habit sometimes in our small groups. We always have an application question, right? And so, but, but the problem is there's an, there's an assumption built into that, that every scripture has an application. And then we get some of these devotional books being written, you know, where we're like deep in the middle of lamentations and we're coming up with an application for the week, you know, and it's always about how can I apply it? And I think we misunderstand the idea of its usefulness, that we think that every passage has to be used the same way. I don't think every scripture has an application. I think all of scripture demands a response from us. And I think we need to be thinking about that. How should I respond to this? All scripture demands a response. And we need to be asking ourselves what what response God wants from us. So I'm going to give you two discussion questions to kind of wrap this up. So just with your maybe two, three, four people right around you. Um, so you might jot these down so that I don't have to stay up here and, and uh, say the second one. The first is, what are you most tempted to turn the Bible into? You know, rules, a devotional book, a theology book, self-help book, question and answer book, whatever that is. What are you most tempted to sort of turn it into instead of what it is, taking it on its own terms? And then the second is what lies or excuses prevent you from reading or understanding or using the scripture actively? What lies or excuses are most likely to prevent you from reading and understanding and using the scripture actively? So we'll take about seven to 10 minutes to kind of discuss those things with people around you and give everyone a chance to share, meet them if you haven't, and then we will, I think Brad or someone will come up and tell us what we're doing next. Go for it. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.